0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu
1: what we had uh, gotten to last time was tertullian and what we find happening just to sort of orient us for a moment there's been persecution of the early church there has been there have been heretical kinds of movements emerge movements which claim to be christian more or less and of course that forces the church to define itself and we have looked at a number of folks including tertullian and we'll finish off tertullian and then we'll look at a couple of others tonight And these are the early stages of theological formation. There are some some steps that are not uh, complete or as full as we would like. Uh, Some of of them go in directions that that perhaps we find a little troubling. Uh, What we're going to find, looking and finishing up Tertullian, looking at Irenaeus and Cyprian tonight, we're going to see... the beginnings of institutional Christianity. We start seeing the church and ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, uh, particularly with Cyprian, but we see it also in Irenaeus, uh, starting to become a matter of preoccupation for these early theologians. Uh, When you're pressed from the outside from heresy and persecution... You, bring, you come in and you start to in effect institutionalize, to centralize and you start dealing with matters such as authority and uh, orthodoxy what is the truth if you Gnostics say it's this we say it's this and you have to define yourself in opposition to those challenges so you will notice and I'll stop from time to time and point this out where I think that we're starting to see the beginnings the first uh, seeds of what becomes in more developed form medieval theology or the Middle Ages just to rehearse very quickly the theology of Tertullian uh, in his doctrine of God one of the sort of odd features is he talks about the corporeality of God uh, there is some debate as to what he means by that God having a corpus as he says. Uh, it may mean nothing other than the fact that God exists. We talked about that last time. Um, And what Tertullian is especially important for our purposes is he becomes one of the earliest uh, articulators of of a fairly clear doctrine of the Trinity. Tertullian and the Trinity. Very important. He is the first, you will recall, to use the phrase the Latin phrase Trinitas or Trinity he acknowledges that God is three and that God is one one being three persons so he very much has at least in the earliest in its early stages a doctrine of the Trinity now the main hitch to Tertullian's view is a fact that there is still an element of essential or ontological subordination. The Son still appears to be in some essential sense subordinate to the Father. And so that's one of the main reasons why He is in fact uh, does not articulate a full, complete doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. Doctrine of Christ. I think that's where we left off last time. Tertullian... Again, we see here, early orthodoxy. He stresses that Christ was the God-man. He rejects any suggestion that somehow the second person of the Trinity changed in order to become man, as if there was a change in His nature, that He changed His divinity to become humanity. He rejects any of that kind of idea. He rejects any sort of Divine human alloy that he's part God and part man he'll have nothing to do with that he wants to stress that God, that Christ is fully God and fully man so this is a major step in articulating what becomes orthodoxy the son he says is pre-existent although there are a couple of places where Tertullian says the Son had a beginning. So, he wants to stress basically the eternal preexistence of the Son, but there are these obscure passages where he seems to be inconsistent with himself. And he does refer to Christ as having a beginning. But those are not characteristic of Tertullian's basic thought on Christ. He will say also that... Jesus, the Son, created the world, was involved in that at some level. He will also talk about Christ being virgin-born. He will also talk about Christ, even in His humanity, as being sinless. So, what we see then in Tertullian are really some important steps in formulating the Orthodox doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of man. I inserted that. Again, we see some Orthodox beginnings here. According to Tertullian, man was made in the image of God, but man fell. Now, one of the things, and again we see this in Tertullian, just like we see in almost all of the early church fathers in the patristic era before Augustine. There is not an extended discussion about the extent of sin in man. There's no extensive discussion of the consequences of the fall. He talks about a fall, but he doesn't elaborate. Uh, That doesn't really take place the doctrine of the fall and original sin until the 5th century with Augustine and Pelagius. Now, one interesting thing that Tertullian gets into uh, is he makes a contribution on the matter of the origin of the human soul. Where does it come from? These are the kinds of things that people were trying to uh, deal with in the 2nd and 3rd century. And generally speaking, there were three views about the origin of the human soul. The first one is called creationism. That's not uh, modern scientific creationism. But this view of creationism simply says that the origin of each human soul was directly created by God. At his time, and I'm going to to end up there are three theories, and the third theory is we find for the first time articulated by Tertullian. So these are views that had existed and, in fact, still exist, uh, at least the first and the third. You know, this one, incidentally, uh, has some relevance to modern-day discussions about abortion. Uh, You know, if God directly creates the soul in a fetus... Then that means that that fetus isn't in the image of God. And so there are, are some real potential consequences if you take this view in terms of a pro uh, an anti- I should say, an anti-abortion view. at any rate, that's the creation view. Many of the Eastern theologians sort of tended toward this creationist view of the origin of the human soul created? Well that I mean, nobody knows exactly. at some point. Or yeah, or it, whether it's conception at conception or whatever. I mean, that's those are kind of fine little, fine things that it's difficult to know. Uh, any one of those could fit, whether it's at, at conception or at some subsequent point in in the womb. Uh, but the, the point is, is that God does it, and uh, generally speaking, it's before the actual birth. Yeah. Well, it, it's. There are various viewpoints. The key to this idea of creationism is that God is the one who creates the soul, that it doesn't come through physical generation. Uh, different people will identify, and sometimes they don't even discuss the point at which this happens. It is, it is cloaked in mystery, particularly for 2nd and 3rd century uh, thinkers. There was the other another view, and this is one we've already looked at just briefly, the view of origin. And that is that, remember... God, in eternity before the world was created, created these little spirits and they rebelled. And so, this is the view that talks about the pre existence of the human soul before the creation of the world. And then it becomes clothed in humanity as a punishment. The origin view, the view of origin. And, of course, what this does in terms of the fall is it it makes the moment man comes into existence as a fallen creature, there is no temporal fall. There is only a pre-temporal fall, which makes that sort of an an, an odd view. And, again, I think there may be some evidences here of some Gnostic sort of influences that have seeped into uh, Origen's view. But the key view that I want to mostly mention here, and you can't really see that very well, can you? is the view of Tertullian called Traducianism. Traducianism. T-R-A-D-U-C-I-A-N-I-S-M. This is the third view, and Tertullian is pointed out as the person who first articulated what is called Traducianism. And this is simply the view, it's very simple, is that the human soul is passed on with the body in physical generation, from parent to child. Where does a child get its soul? From its parent, just like it gets its body. Now, you know, there's some interesting things about this particular view that makes you want to think a little bit, and that is it somehow suggests that Adam's soul had reproductive powers. The soul... Uh, that raises, I suppose, some questions. At any rate, Traditionism tended to be the view of the more Western theologians. Creationism tended to be the view of the Eastern Church. Uh, Eastern Christianity, excuse me. Just to sort of orient you a little bit with regard to Traditionism, uh, there were a number of notable people in history who have held to A traditionist view. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, NYSSA. Lutherans tend toward a tradition view. And even some Reformed uh, persons will uh, incline themselves, at least a few, to traditionism. Uh, W.G.T. Shedd, A.H. Strong, and Bavink and Dabney, uh, they acknowledge some truth to Traditionism. So they don't simply dismiss it out of hand. Uh, Burkhoff he's not very happy with Traditionism. He's much more of a creationist in terms of the origin of the soul. So that sort of gives you a little bit of an orientation about this view, that it still is circulating at least for some folk. On the sacraments... Uh, Tertullian makes a very close link between baptism and salvation. For him there is a, a real sanctifying virtue in baptism that communicates something. In fact, he, he almost tends toward uh, viewing baptism as almost magical. That if you repent and you are baptized, then you have entered into the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a very strong link. It's, it's not far from what we would call baptismal regeneration, uh, although it is not without repentance and faith. Uh, he acknowledged that baptism was both a work of man and a work of God. In his little book, On Baptism, Tertullian writes that baptism and repentance are the two planks on which the sinner is saved from shipwreck. Repent, uh, baptism and repentance are the two planks on which the sinner is saved from shipwreck. Now, the only exception to this general rule about baptism being closely associated with salvation is in the case of a martyr if someone dies a martyr's death and are, and are not baptized they can still enter into uh, the gates of heaven you'll find that martyrdom there are, is always sort of the exception to the rule on a whole number of issues uh, the effect of baptism according to Tertullian extends only to those sins committed before baptism, pre-baptismal sins, original sin and uh, actual sins before baptism. And one of the results of this view that baptism wipes the the slate clean is that Tertullian recommends that people put (coughs) baptism off. To put it off until later in life. Now, one of the other things that's very interesting about Tertullian is how he answers the question how do you obtain forgiveness of those sins you commit after baptism I see this is significant how do you obtain forgiveness for your sins committed after baptism that is where Tertullian stresses repentance And in fact, we see in Tertullian the first evidences of, of the first inclination towards a doctrine of penance. A doctrine that came to essentially dominate the Middle Ages, the medieval medieval church. For those post-baptismal sins... Tertullian stresses that the individual must somehow satisfy God or appease God for his sins. And that's Norman. He points to certain acts of penance. Certain good works, uh, certain prayers, a certain activity. You have to somehow and he doesn't use this language, but he moves in this direction, atone for those post-baptismal sins by acts of penance. And what is very, very significant is that he works out a real clear system, one that is in many respects identical to that of the church in the Middle Ages. He stresses that there are three elements... repentance that is for dealing with those post baptismal sins what are they the first element is contrition being sorry for your sins very important the second element in his system of penance is confession You must confess one sin to another. And then finally, what are called satisfaction or uh, acts of penance to satisfy, uh, to somehow remove the the offense that you have uh, made against God by committing these post baptismal sins. By doing these acts of penance called satisfaction, then you can get back into the flow of things until the next post-baptismal sin. He's using the word repentance. I'm saying here that we find uh, the first seed. He he, this is not exactly the same thing as the fully developed sacrament of penance that the church adopts in the Middle Ages. What I'm saying is we start finding early Evidences of this kind of idea of doing acts of penance for post-baptismal sins. He's using the words. Uh, he does use the word confession, uh, and I'm not sure if he uses the word satisfaction or not. Uh, I I don't know if that's the exact language he uses, but he does talk about sorrow for sin, talks about confession. And then, doing things to somehow satisfy god 's uh, the offense that God has suffered for those sins, oh, just I have a quote here from Tertullian <clears throat> talking about this 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 notion of satisfaction. Tertullian speaks of quote repaying God f- what he has paid for us, this idea of repaying God. Uh, moves in this, this direction of satisfying God by acts of penance for post-baptismal sins. Now, clearly, he doesn't hold to a doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Uh, and one finds in Tertullian a very legal kind of flavor throughout his writings. And, of course, that's not surprising given the fact that Tertullian was a trained lawyer. His view of God was as a lawgiver and as a judge who punishes transgressors. One will find uh, a lot of legal language in Tertullian. You'll find the language of merit, the language of reward, punishment, penalty, payment, compensation, that kind of language used by a lawyer to describe the relationship of a sinful man in relationship to his God. And so there is a certain legalistic conception of Christianity in Tertullian. Okay, uh, the Eucharist. Just a quick run through on this. He generally is understood to have taken a more figurative view of the Eucharist in striking contrast to the waters of baptism. He does not see any inherent virtue in the Eucharistic elements, that somehow they convey magical transforming powers. And so he generally takes a more symbolic view of the elements. Now, again, there are times when he talks about Eating the body and blood of Christ, and some might take that in a more substantial uh, way, but it's generally understood that he understands the Eucharist in a more symbolic way. Finally, about eschatology, uh, Tertullian, as if you, well I don't know if we, something anyway, he really strongly believes in a final punishment for evildoers, and it's an eternal punishment. And, as we've already mentioned, uh, Tertullian in his latter days uh, became something of a Montanist, certainly sympathetic to Montanists. And that means that he was Achilles. C-H-I-L-I-A-S-T. If I were you, I would circle that word in red. Because that's just the kind of thing I might ask you on a midterm exam. Cool. <laughs> Achilles. C-H-I-L-I-A-S-T. And what is Achilles? Bob Reed. Um, someone who sees the, uh, in that's right. Christ returns... And he sets up a literal physical kingdom, in which he reigns for a thousand years. Uh, you know, I don't know if he if he saw that as what's the name of the place, Pepuza, or if it was in Jerusalem. Uh, Anyway, I I don't know if if he specifically follows the Montanists in identifying Papuza as opposed to Jerusalem. It's where the the kingdom will will be. At any rate, uh, that's Tertullian. Very, very significant. Any questions? Warren. A Montanist? Uh, We talked about that. It's it's a group uh, who believe in the uh, validity of the prophetic gifts. Uh, Montanus claimed to be the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit and so forth claimed to be a prophet in effect that uh, had the gift of prophecy okay let's move to the next important theologian early theologian in whom we begin to see some of the early early uh, ideas that become normative in western Christianity. Irenaeus, his dates are approximately 115 to 202 A.D., early 3rd century. Now, Irenaeus had been one of the survivors of the Holocaust in Gaul, that is in France. Remember the stories that I told you? I read you the story about Blondina the slave girl who was so incredibly brave in the face of her of death and, and all of that. Well, that all occurred in 177 A.D. in France. There was this terrible, terrible uh, uh, unleashing of persecution against the Christians. And Irenaeus uh, was from this region. Well, he, he ended up in this region. And he survived uh, this terrible, terrible holocaust He had been an immigrant from Smyrna.
0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.